Well, it's good to have this opportunity again, men, to dive into doctrine, especially as we consider this next session in our series on the mercies of God, our study of the key components of salvation. And this this time, tonight, we are going to look at the doctrine of sanctification once again. Uh, you remember from last time we introduced the doctrine of sanctification and got into some of the key elements of it, defined it. Now we've got to get into it a little bit deeper, and that's what we'll do uh, this session that we have together. Well, by way of introduction, I, I want to emphasize once again the importance of a, an accurate understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. We cannot overemphasize this doctrine and its impact on the Christian life. For example, if we would look at the doctrine of sanctification in relation to the doctrine of justification and consider the relationship of those two doctrines, any error in our understanding of the relationship of those two doctrines results in some pretty serious errors. For example, if we were to fail to distinguish sanctification from justification, that would lead us into a false gospel of works-based righteousness. At the same time, a failure to connect these two doctrines and see that they are definitely related and the one springs out of the other, to, to fail to connect them would lead to the errors of antinomianism. Now, the early church was certainly not immune to such misunderstandings. In fact, what we find in the Apostle Paul's writing, especially in Romans, after he gives this amazing exposition of the doctrine of justification in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, to Romans chapter 5, verse 21, he immediately begins a new section on the doctrine of sanctification, assuming that there will be misunderstandings. And notice what he begins immediately after he closes his discussion on the doctrine of justification in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 21. Immediately, he then begins in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 with these words, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So we see that as as we deepen our understanding of the doctrine of salvation, we must give great care and concern to our understanding of these different components And this is especially the case when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification because it impacts so much of how we view the Christian life. Again, commenting on the relationship of the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification and how we dare not separate these two doctrines but understand them appropriately, Michael Allen says this, quote, God justifies us so that God can and will sanctify us. Justification is not meant to be a final or ultimate blessing, but it is an entryway blessing that brings one into a journey that terminates in a still greater benefit, the transforming presence of the glorious God of the gospel. So that is why we're spending so much time on this doctrine of sanctification. We began at last Wednesday, and we're continuing it now, and we'll even have another session on the doctrine of sanctification next Wednesday. But let's review a little bit from last week. Let's remember our definition of sanctification. What is it? If we look at the the verb to sanctify, it essentially means this. To sanctify means to set something apart from the ordinary, from its mundane context, to set something apart For a special purpose. That's the basic meaning of the verb to sanctify. And it has that meaning in in various contexts. If we were to look at the Old Testament, we would see that that was often done with various instruments used in the worship of the temple. It also has a relationship particularly to the doctrine of salvation, to this moral concept of setting apart. And, And again, when we look at this verb to sanctify, and we look at the noun sanctification in its basic sense as it relates to salvation, we must remember that it includes these two essential elements. Number one, sanctification involves separation 
from sin in the world. It's the first of the two major components. Separation from, setting apart from sin and the world. And then secondly, sanctification involves the consecration of the person to God and his purposes. Both of these elements are essential. They're at the heart of the doctrine of sanctification. And we're going to look at that in much more detail this evening. Now, one thing also to keep in mind as we discussed last week, as we introduced the doctrine of sanctification, is to remember that Scripture teaches sanctification in, in essentially in three phases, three distinct fra- uh, stages or, or phases of, of sanctification. Now, they're all interrelated, but we have to recognize Scripture's various description of these stages. The first we saw was definitive sanctification. I'll define that once again in just a moment. We looked at that last week, but definitive sanctification is something that happens to us at the moment of regeneration. Then the second phase of sanctification, which begins uh, with definitive sanctification, is progressive sanctification. That phase of sanctification that extends from the moment of regeneration to the moment of glorification. And then we have the third phase or the third stage of sanctification, what we can call perfective sanctification. I'll say a few more words about that later on, but that too is an instantaneous act that happens at the moment of glorification. So keep this in mind as we continue our study this evening on the doctrine of sanctification. Now let's look at the first of these phases. Let's look at definitive sanctification. What is definitive sanctification and why is it so important? Well, as we talked about last week, definitive sanctification is an instantaneous act accomplished by God at the moment of regeneration. I like what Michael Horton says when he writes this, quote, Before we can speak of our being put to holy use and growing in grace, we must see that sanctification is, first of all, God's act of setting us apart from the world for himself, end quote. Now, that first act, God's act of setting us apart from the world for himself is what we call definitive sanctification. And it happens at the moment of regeneration. It is a single act. It's not a process. It's accomplished by God alone, not by the believer or the believer's participation. It pertains to our position with respect to sin and good works. In it, the believer is made dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That is what definitive sanctification accomplishes. And that's very important to to remember. And we could look at Romans chapter 6 in particular that emphasizes this, that by virtue of our definitive sanctification, God has canceled the power of sin in the believer's life. The tyranny of sin, sin's dominion over the believer has now been canceled. The believer is now considered dead to sin. The believer now is no longer a slave to sin. That is what definitive sanctification accomplishes in that instantaneous act at the moment of regeneration. But although definitive sanctification eliminates sin's dominion over the believer, it does not eliminate sin's presence. And that's a a reality that we read of when we read through the pages of Scripture and we read how the saints of, of the Old and New Testament still struggled with the ongoing presence of sin. This is perhaps well described by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, where he himself acknowledges his imperfection. He is not yet totally sanctified. We read these words. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So here's the reality to which Paul refers. And it's summarized well by John Murray, when he says this, quote, the believer 
is not yet so conformed to the image of Christ that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. So the reality of it is, with definitive sanctification, we experience liberation from sin's dominion. But we do not experience freedom from sin's presence and its ongoing pollution. And that is what leads us to the next phase of sanctification, what we call progressive sanctification. And it's to that topic that we now turn, and we'll spend the rest of our time really on this topic and a few words about perfective sanctification, but we'll leave that for our study on glorification several weeks from now. So let's now turn to the key terms and definitions. As we talk about progressive sanctification, what are the key terms that we must identify and define accurately? Well, there's four of them that I want to look at uh, this evening. First of all, progressive sanctification. Let's define that accurately. Then we're going to look at the, the term mortification. Then thirdly, we'll look at the term vivification. And then we will give a little bit of time to the term perfective sanctification. So four key terms, which we'll define as we move forward now. Progressive sanctification, mortification, vivification, and perfective sanctification. So let's look at the first of these. Progressive sanctification. Now we've already defined definitive sanctification, that instantaneous act done by God at the moment of regeneration where he sets us apart for himself from sin and from the world and breaks the bonds of sin. Now, that has occurred in every believer's life. But as we already acknowledged, there still is the presence of of sin and, and the ongoing pollution of sin in our lives. So how are we set apart from that? And that is what we deal with when we're discussing progressive sanctification. So let's define it. Now, progressive sanctification maintains this twofold emphasis on separation and consecration. Progressive sanctification continues the same idea of separation from sin and the world and consecration to God and his purposes. This is what progressive sanctification is about. But rather than being a definitive or instantaneous act, progressive sanctification is a lifelong process of increasing intensity. It's important to understand that when we define this term and understand it appropriately in relation to the Christian life. Progressive sanctification, and, and it's really this idea that, that we refer to when we use the term sanctification in general, progressive sanctification is, is not a definitive instantaneous act, but is a lifelong process of increasing intensity. It belongs not to a position as definitive sanctification does, but progressive sanctification deals with actual, real, moral transformation. Moreover, when we define progressive sanctification, we must keep in mind that it is authored and enabled by God, but it requires the conscious participation of the believer. And that's very important. Definitive sanctification was something that was done to us at the moment of regeneration. But when we look at progressive sanctification, this is now something in which we as believers now directly participate. It is now an issue, a matter of obedience. So if we take those thoughts and put, pull them all together, this is what I think we would land on in terms of a, a good, concise definition of progressive sanctification. It's the definition given by Louis Burkhoff, a standard definition for progressive sanctification when he writes this, quote, Sanctification may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, 
and enables him to perform good works. End quote. Now, with progressive sanctification, as you've probably noticed already, with progressive sanctification, we introduce for the first time the importance of the believer's works in the process of God's redemptive plan. For the first time, we, we speak now of the ability and necessity of the believer to please God through his acts of righteousness. Now remember, up, in, up until this point, as we have looked at all the components of, of, of salvation, as we've looked at the order of salvation, as we've looked at what God has done, we have been emphasizing the indicatives. We have been emphasizing the things that God has done for us, what he has gifted to us. But when we talk about progressive sanctification, now in the the whole plan of redemption, it is here where we now emphasize the importance of obedience, the necessity of, of good works, and where we emphasize now the opportunity, the requirement, the expectation that the believer will now produce acts of righteousness which will be pleasing in God's sight. Now, it's important to remember this, however. These works that we now emphasize in the process of progressive sanctification, these works which are necessary, which are expected, which are commanded from the believer, these works are not intended for the purpose of receiving a a a pronouncement of righteousness. These are not necessary to somehow receive that declaration by God that we are righteous. Remember, that is what we call justification. That was done to us on the basis of someone else's works. It was done to us and for us on the basis of the works of Jesus Christ because he obeyed. Because he was perfectly righteous. God has taken that and has imputed that to us and has declared us legally, declared us forensically as righteous in his sight. It's important to remember that. That's the doctrine of justification. When we talk about the doctrine of progressive sanctification and the necessity of works, These works are not done to receive the pronouncement or the declaration of righteousness. Not at all. Rather, these works that are done in the process of progressive sanctification come out as a result of justification. Only because the believer has already been declared righteous in God's sight can he now practice righteousness for God's pleasure? It's important to remember that. Let me repeat that again. Only because the believer has already been declared righteous in God's sight, can he practice righteousness for God's pleasure. It's not to merit salvation, but rather it is the proper outworking of what has already been made true of us in a positional sense. You could put it this way. Sanctification is that process whereby the believer becomes, in the practical sense, what he already is in his position or in the legal sense. Sanctification is when the believer begins to practice his position. I like what Herman Bavink said when he described this well, he talks about there being an organic life that, that is to be used as an analogy to understand what is occurring. And he says this, quote, those who are born of God increasingly become the children of God and bear his image and likeness, because in principle, they already are his children. The rule of organic life applies to them. Become what you are. 
It is a, a wonderful analogy, and this is how we ought to understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. We have already been declared righteous because of Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us as our as our, as a gift to us. Now, as we begin to live, we live out that standing. We live out that reality of Christ's righteousness through this process of progressive sanctification. It indeed is the process of becoming what we have already been declared to be. Now, when we talk about that further, we have to introduce some other terms. Another one is the term mortification. What is mortification? Mortification, we can define this way, and it's a very important element of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification includes this element, what we call mortification, which can be defined this way. It is the discipline of killing sin. It is the believer's active warfare against the presence of sin in his life that is waged by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mortification is warfare. Mortification is killing sin. Now, the Puritans loved this uh, this term, and they used it often to describe one of the two-pronged approaches to progressive sanctification, but it, it doesn't come from the Puritans themselves. In fact, it comes from the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 13, Paul gives us this very important paradigm for understanding the work of progressive sanctification. He says this, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Stop there for just a moment. There Paul is making reference to definitive sanctification. He's saying that we no longer are under any obligation to the flesh. Sin's dominion has been once and for all ended by the work of definitive sanctification. But in light of that, Paul gives additional instruction here when he says this. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you live by the Spirit, now he refers here, notice his terminology to refer to an aspect of progressive sanctification. He says, if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. If you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is mortification. And that is one of two very important prongs in in understanding the work of progressive sanctification. It involves the discipline of killing sin an active warfare against the presence of sin in our lives. For any believer, the dominion of sin has already been canceled. But sin remains as an ongoing reality. Its presence still marks our flesh. And so Paul gives us instructions here to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That is mortification. And this concept of mortification, we can also define in other terms. Paul also uses the terminology of putting off or putting away. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, we read these words, both in terms of mortification and in terms of putting off. He says in verse 5, beginning in Colossians 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these too, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying this, and this is 
the first half of understanding progressive sanctification. You must reject the presence of sin. You must refuse to give it a foothold. You must starve it. You must choke it. You must suffocate it. You must cut off its life supply. This is extremely important for understanding biblical sanctification. It requires that active warfare against all those temptations, against all those sources of sin in your life. That is what we must do. I like how John Owen explained this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He goes on elsewhere to state this, let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. That's mortification. A deliberate, hostile attitude we must take to any of the vestiges of sin in our life. Yes, its dominion over us has been terminated once and for all. Romans 6 makes that very clear. But its presence remains. And for us to engage in progressive sanctification, we must have the, this very serious approach of killing sin. Now that leads us to a third term, the term vivification. Vivification, it means to make something come alive, and, and it refers to the second prong of our approach to progressive sanctification. We could look at it this way. Vivification is the discipline of enlivening Christ-like virtue. It is the discipline of enlivening, of making to come alive, of producing, of cultivating Christ-like virtue. It is the believer's conscious effort to produce those good works that are consistent with the character of Jesus Christ, and it is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is done because we love the Lord Jesus. This concept of vivification is is synonymous to the concept of putting on. We, We noticed that with mortification, it had the idea of killing sin, but also has the idea of putting off, as in putting off clothing, putting off vices, putting off sin. The concept of vivification is the exact opposite. Something is put on, but it is not vice, but it is Christ-like virtue. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14. Notice how Paul instructs us in these words. He says this, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now notice what he says. This is vivification. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts we would look at his words in Colossians 3 again, we we looked at verses 5 to 11 in terms of mortification. And Paul in Colossians 3 transitions then in verse 12 to talk about vivification. He says this, Colossians 3, 12 to 13, he says, put on then. Now remember, go back to, to, to verse 5, he says, put off. But now he says, put on, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There is your definitive sanctification. You are already considered in position holy. You are considered to be a saint. But out of this flows the need for progressive sanctification. And so Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What, what Paul is essentially saying here is put on all the qualities, all the virtues of Jesus Christ. That is vivification. 
So as we look at sanctification, let's understand it again correctly. Progressive sanctification, this ongoing process of increasing intensity in the believer's life, is made up of these two approaches. Then they're interrelated. You cannot have one without the other. It's imbalanced only talk about one of these without the other. So on the one hand, we must think of it as we even defined sanctification in terms of separation from sin. We must also think of sanctification in terms of consecration to God. When we think of separation from sin, we must look at it in terms of mortification. It is it is killing sin. It is putting off everything that is contrary to the character and purposes of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about consecration to God, we talk about vivification. We talk about enlivening. We talk about cultivating and producing all of those qualities which mark the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is the essence of progressive sanctification. And it is something that we do for the entirety of the Christian life here on earth. Now, there was a fourth term that we will define really quickly, and it's the term perfective sanctification. Perfective sanctification. Now, remember, we talked about the three phases or the three stages of sanctification. It began with definitive sanctification as that instantaneous act at the moment of regeneration, whereby God sets us apart from the dominion of sin in the world and sets us apart for his purposes. Then we talked about, secondly, progressive sanctification, that process, that lifelong process that begins at regeneration and goes all the way to our death. It's progressive in nature. It's a process. But then we talk about a third phase, a stage of sanctification called perfective sanctification. And this is what gives us such great hope. Because perfective sanctification is God's final and ultimate act of sanctification, whereby he instantaneously separates us once and for all from even the presence of sin, and he consecrates us once and for all completely, perfectly to his eternal purposes. So when we define perfective sanctification, we realize that this is really synonymous with glorification. So I'm not going to spend time talking about it tonight. In fact, we're going to leave a discussion about this aspect of sanctification to our topic on glorification to come in a couple of weeks from now. But let me give you one text that helps illustrate or describe what perfective sanctification is. First Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Paul's benediction or his closing prayer as he prays for the Thessalonians. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Paul here is anticipating that moment, that final achievement of sanctification, when God will finish this work, and we all long for that. Just a side note here, if we want to consider these three stages of sanctification, we can find a text that expresses these three stages well, and that's 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. We see all three elements of, of sanctification, all three phases described here in this text. The Apostle John writes these words, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. Now, that is referring to definitive sanctification. We are children of God. We have been set apart. We have been consecrated to God. That is definitive sanctification. But John continues and he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him 
because we will see him just as he is. Well, that is perfective sanctification. The moment when we see Jesus, the apostle John says that we will become like him instantaneously because we will see him just as he is. And then John draws an inference from this and he states this in verse 3. He says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's progressive sanctification. There's that middle stage as we work out our position, as we live out the reality that we have been freed from sin, set apart from God in our position, we are children of God, and and we look forward to what we will be one day. That's perfective sanctification. But the process that we are in right now, what we call the Christian life, everyday life, that is what we call progressive sanctification because as we understand these things we purify ourselves as we fix our hope on these realities now that said as those definitions given i want to spend some time going back to uh, going back to uh, progressive sanctification and looking at several essential qualities the essential qualities of progressive sanctification, essential qualities of progressive sanctification, the sanctification that marks us in our current life. Number one, I'm going to give you seven of these. Number one, progressive sanctification is grounded in definitive sanctification. So we look at the essential qualities of of progressive sanctification, we have to understand first, first of all, that progressive sanctification is grounded in definitive sanctification. Our ability to mortify sin and to vivify virtue is possible only because God has already ended sin's dominion at the moment of our regeneration. It's very important to remember that. We can engage in this process of killing sin and cultivating Christ-like virtue only because God has already accomplished this initial definitive sanctification. It has two important implications that we need to stress and we need to keep in mind as we move forward on this. First of all, it's this. There is now no sinful attitude, no sinful desire, no sinful action, no sinful behavior, no sinful attitude that is to be left untargeted by the believer's effort of mortification. This is is very important because especially in our day, you're hearing Christians talk more and more about certain kinds of sinful desires that simply have to be admitted and and, 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 and acknowledged, and the idea is that because I was born this way, I was born with these, these errant desires that I can't change that. I just have to live with who I am. We hear that especially today in, in terms of same-sex attraction. And sadly, there are many out there today, even within the church, that are suggesting things uh, along the lines that if you uh, are a Christian and have same-sex attraction, the only thing you need to focus on is not acting out on those attractions, but the desire itself is just who you are. And so we have a whole category now of what is called the gay Christian. But that kind of thinking directly ignores and undermines the reality of definitive sanctification. Remember that when God sanctified us at the moment of regeneration, when he made us saints in Christ, he canceled the power, the dominion of every sin. He did not leave certain sins to reign among us. He did not leave us enslaved to certain sins. Any ongoing practice on our part is not because of an insufficient work of definitive sanctification at the moment 
of regeneration. It's very important to realize that, and it means every attitude, every sinful attitude, every sinful desire, any sinful action must be part of the target of mortification during the process of progressive sanctification. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope that, that, that there's a process that is possible here, a process of increasing practical righteousness whereby we can experience victory in our fight against sin, whether that be in terms of the desire for sin or whether that be in terms of the actual actions of sin. I like what John Murray says when he states this, it is of paramount concern for the Christian and for the interests of his sanctification, that he should know that sin does not have the dominion over him. That the forces of redeeming, regenerative, and sanctifying grace have been brought to bear upon him in that which is central in his moral and spiritual being. That he is the habitation of God through the Spirit, and that Christ has been formed in him the hope of glory, end quote. What John Murray is doing here is giving every Christian hope. You need not practice sin. You have been freed from sin's dominion. Now set about the work of mortifying the ongoing presence of sin beginning with its actions and desires and and everything in between, you have been given what you need to wage this warfare. But there's a second implication of this as well. Not only does it mean that because progressive sanctification is grounded in, in definitive sanctification, that every sinful desire must now be the target of our activity of warfare. But number two, it means this very simply, If there is no definitive sanctification, there can be no progressive sanctification. If there is no definitive sanctification, there can be no progressive sanctification. And what it refers to then, what this implication means is that apart from regeneration, apart from what happens at the moment of conversion, when God breaks the power of canceled sin, apart from that, there can be no true progressive sanctification. And listen, if, 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 you are, if you are hearing this today and regeneration has not occurred in your life, everything that we talk about with respect to progressive sanctification cannot apply to you. It is impossible. You remain unable to do any kind of work that is truly pleasing to God. Any kind of obedience that will merit His smile upon you. It's impossible. What you must do is recognize the need for supernatural regeneration. You must cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, sanctify me in this definitive sense. Set me apart from my sin. Set me apart from slavery. Set me apart from this world. Set me apart to you and your purposes. Make me new. Make me whole. That is what you must do. In Romans 8, 5 to 8, Paul says this, those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Listen, progressive sanctification is about pleasing God. But if you remain in the flesh, pleasing God is an impossibility for you. You must flee to Him for the gift of regeneration and definitive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is grounded in definitive sanctification. Number two, progressive sanctification is aimed at Christ-likeness. Now, this is very important to note. Genuine sanctification, we talk about 
progressive sanctification. It's not interested in, in keeping a list of rules that pertain to external behaviors. That is, that is not what progressive sanctification is all about. It's much more profound and much more simple than that. Progressive sanctification is aimed at conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And so when we engage in mortification and when we engage in vivification, it is done for this ultimate aim that we would become like Jesus Christ. That is, after all, what, why God has saved us. Romans 8 verse 29 says that he has done this to conform us to the image of his son. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18, we read these words. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What Paul is referring to, there is this process of progressive sanctification, this process of mortification, and this process of vivification, that as we focus on the person of Jesus Christ, as we gaze upon His glory, as we study His beauty as revealed within God's Word, we are transformed more and more to his likeness. And that's why the Apostle Paul himself in Colossians and elsewhere had, had no place for just a, a list of external checklists of, of how you should do this and not do that. He was much more concerned with this conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 emphasize the same thing where the writer exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not because Jesus is somehow the the one who writes the rules for the course, but because Jesus has done the course before us. He is the one who has already run the race. He has provided the example for us. And we who are true believers we who have been regenerated and definitively sanctified, now focus on following in his train. 1 John 2 verse 6 says that the one who abides in him, in Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Have this attitude which... It was also in Christ Jesus. And so in a very real sense, that there is the question that we must always ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Not in the silly kind of way that the world asks it and asks that question and answers it completely apart from the word of God. No, we ask that question, what would Jesus do? And we look in the word where his glory and his character is revealed to us. And that is what we do. Progressive sanctification is aimed at conformity to Christ-likeness. Remember that. Anytime that you, you're focused and, and considering Christian growth, life in pursuit of holiness, remember it is all about conformity to Jesus Christ. Number three, progressive sanctification is authored and empowered by God. Progressive sanctification is authored and empowered by God. Now, there's several errors that I need to mention here. We will actually look at these a little bit in in greater detail in the, the session next week. But let me raise them already. There's one error of sanctification where some people have this kind of mindset. They, they'll, they'll believe this, that God regenerated me, God sanctified or God justified me, God adopted me, God forgave my sins, He gave me eternal life, but now the rest is up to me. Sanctification is now my contribution to salvation. Very, very fatal error. Another error in understanding sanctification is when people will suggest this, that God contributes 50% of the equation in sanctification and the believer contributes the remaining 50%. But that too is, is not how Scripture describes sanctification. The truth is that God is primary even in the work of progressive sanctification. 
Even when we talk about our responsibility to obey and to please God through good works, God remains primary. We pursue the holiness that he provides. And as we pursue it, he enables that pursuit. God is primary in the work of sanctification. And the, re- the believer remains entirely dependent upon him for growth. This is why Jesus prayed to God on behalf of believers. Jesus prayed to the Father when he said this, Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Thy word is truth. Paul prays similar prayers, praying for sanctification. When when he prays, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, that he, the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul recognized that God was the primary agent in this process of sanctification. Jesus also taught that apart from complete dependency upon him, no spiritual fruitfulness, no obedience that is pleasing to God is even possible. He he says this in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is emphasizing very clearly that the believer is not the primary agent of sanctification. God is. And in particular, as we read the scriptures, we we read that progressive sanctification is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in particular. It's, it's a particular facet of the Holy Spirit's work, his ministry of applying the, the achievements of redemption to us, that he in particular is involved in the process of progressive sanctification. We see this, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, where Paul refers to the sanctification that comes by the Spirit. Peter also refers to this in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, where he refers to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. If we look at Galatians chapter 5, we would see Paul's instructions there, his command to walk by the Spirit. And he goes on to say a few verses later, after verse 16, in verses 22 to 23, that it is the fruit of the Spirit that is the essence of progressive sanctification. That of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. John Murray says this, It is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We must not forget, of course, that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification. But we must not rely upon our own strength or resolution of purpose. Listen, this isn't about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This isn't about having a a more firmer resolve to live the right way on our own. We must recognize that in this process of progressive sanctification, we pursue the holiness which God alone supplies by the power which he alone supplies. Similarly, John Owen said this, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. Men may attempt this work on other principles by means and advantages administered on other accounts as they always have done and do. But, saith he, this is the work of the Spirit. By him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. End quote. 
Number four, a fourth essential quality of progressive sanctification is that it is required of the believer. Even though God is the primary agent, the author and enabler of sanctification, it still is a requirement. The believer is responsible for pursuing progressive sanctification, for pursuing holiness. He is responsible for his own deliberate and vigorous participation. And this reality is observed in all the moral imperatives that follow the indicatives. And we see this throughout the New Testament that we see these these affirmations of what God has achieved for us as accomplished fact. And that is emphasized. And then out of that grows the imperatives. We can see that in the letter to the Ephesians, for example, where Paul takes three chapters and talks about all the things that God has done for us. In Christ. And then begins in chapter 4 and says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your election. Herman Bavink said this, Scripture always holds on to both facets. God's all-encompassing activity and our responsibility. End quote. Very important to remember that. So all of these commands then out of the new, in the New Testament that speak of the Christian life flow out of what God has already done for us, but place responsibility in the believer's hands. Look at 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Notice again how Paul expresses this reality. He says, therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, Paul states this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, now he describes it in this particular case and this need for the Thessalonian church. He said, this is God's will, your sanctification. And that sanctification is defined as follows. Here is your responsibility that you abstain from sexual immorality. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And all of the moral instruction of the New Testament echoes this same idea that God has accomplished for us redemption. And out of this now flows the imperatives. The indicatives have been done. God has done this work for us by his grace. Now we must act in response to God's wonderful grace to us. J.C. Ryle says this, Sanctification is a thing for which every believer is responsible. Whose fault is it if they are not holy but their own? On whom can they throw blame if they are not sanctified but themselves? God, who has given them grace and a new heart and a new nature, has deprived them of all excuse if they do not live for his praise. Let me move on now to the, to the next essential quality of progressive sanctification. Number five, progressive sanctification is revealed through the Application of right means. Progressive sanctification is realized through the application of right means. Now, this is very important as well. Since God is the primary agent in sanctification, the believer must use the means of sanctification that he prescribes. Yet what's important to note is that in both historic Christianity and in contemporary Christianity, we find all kinds of approaches to sanctification which are devoid of God's word. We, we see this, it's kind of a, a Christian Gnosticism, a secret knowledge that people gain or that people claim through experience. They reject or ignore the very clear instructions, the means that God has described in his word and invent out of their own imagination ways to become holy. 
You can look at it on TV and see the kind of stuff being proffered by many so-called TV evangelists or go into the Christian bookstores today and what do you find? All kinds of books claiming esoteric experiential insights into holiness or God-likeness. Most of that is merely motivated by financial gain and has nothing to do with honoring and pleasing the Lord. We must ignore those false sources of knowledge. We must ignore feeling and intuition-based approaches that plague the church because we must realize that they lead to rampant confusion, chaos, and disaster in the Christian life. No. God's desire is to create a people who will reflect the glory of His Son. And that is of such importance to Him that He has not left us without instruction. We can find the means to progressive sanctification clearly defined and described and illustrated for us in His Word. And that leads us to a very important rule that you must remember as it pertains to the pursuit of holiness and this growth in Christ's likeness. And here's the rule. Each and every means that the believer must employ in his mortification of sin and his vivification of righteousness must be derived directly from the teaching of Scripture. Now, we could look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 to illustrate that, that this is the purpose for God's word. It is for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So that means any time when someone wants to prescribe some kind of instruction for your growth in godliness, your very first question must be, from where does this arise? Where have you got this teaching? Is this based upon a careful study of the word of God. And let me say this, any, any instruction, any exhortation for the pursuit of holiness, for becoming Christ-like, that does not arise from the pages of scripture must be rejected. God is very clear that in making a people conform to the image of his son, they must abide by his prescribed means. Now, what are those means? I won't go into detail. Uh, very quickly, studying and meditating upon God's word, practicing prayer, the discipline of obedience, the exercise of worship, fellowship in the community of God's people, the work of evangelism, the endurance of trials, the act of giving, and we could list more. But these are means that are prescribed in God's word that, that describe for us and prescribe for us the way to grow in Christ's likeness, the way to kill sin and to vivify Christ-like righteousness. Number six, quickly, progressive sanctification is holistic in nature. I won't spend much time here, but it's important to emphasize that sanctification is aimed at the entire person. All aspects of the believer, whether the intellect, the will, emotions, or the body, and we could see that if we would do a, a lengthy study of the, the scriptures, that the commands, the imperatives are directed at all aspects of the believer's being. There is not one aspect of your life that is not to be part of this process of mortification and vivification. Everything that defines who you are, everything that you know, everything that you think, everything, uh, every way that you make decisions, all of your emotions, your joys, your sorrows, your speech, your actions, your habits, your bodily conduct, all of that fall under this imperative of progressive sanctification. And finally, number seven, progressive sanctification is cultivated by the appropriate motives. We need to return to this regularly and remind ourselves why we do this. And, it's, and you'll notice that as we go through this list very briefly, it's not the motive that we will somehow, by becoming more Christ-like in our, in our actions, that somehow we will gain salvation. 
Not at all. Instead, we are motivated by different kinds of motivations. We build upon what God has already done for us. We live out who we really are according to our position. And so we are motivated by these kinds of things in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. We do it because it's the right thing to do. God commands it. He is authoritative and he is Lord. We do it because it leads to a clean conscience. And the more that we grow in this progressive pursuit of holiness, the cleaner our conscience will be. It makes one more useful in ministry. It assists in the spread of the gospel. It avoids grieving the Holy Spirit. It averts the discipline of God. It prevents disqualification in ministry. It increases a heavenly reward. And another important motivation, and perhaps the most important of them all, is that it brings pleasure to our Father. As we think about being motivated for the right reasons, it's not because we are afraid to lose our salvation Not at all. The biggest motivation that we have in the pursuit of holiness is that now, because of what Christ has done for us, because of the new life that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, we now can do works that are pleasing to God, that are pleasing to our Father. For the first time, it is possible to engage in, in killing sin and, and vivifying virtue, knowing that God smiles upon that. Now we can live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and we can derive our joy and our satisfaction and contentment in life that when we obey, when We strive after the things that are described and defined in Scripture. The smile of God rests upon us. That's the greatest motivation. I like what Anthony Hokema says when he says this, I prefer to say that sanctification enables us to live lives which are pleasing to God. End quote. That is what progressive sanctification is about. Having the smile of God on our lives, being able to please our Father who has graced us with spiritual riches which are too profound and innumerable to quantify. They are great. And when we go about our our lives every day, from the moment we rise in the morning to the moment we put our pillow, our head on our pillow, that when we look at life as the opportunity to please our Heavenly Father, that gives us great motivation for this process of intensifying holiness, Christ-likeness in our lives. As we close, I want to close with this prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, which looks at the end of this entire process, where Paul refers to the promise that we have that one day this process will end and we will experience complete separation from the presence of sin and perfect consecration to God and his purposes. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, let us pray this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, us, entirely. And may your spirit, may our spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and me. And he also will bring it to pass. Amen.